This is Your Liturgical Bible, a Bible study series from Enacting the Kingdom. We believe that through community, ritual, and liturgy, the story of the Bible comes to life. Join Father Jeffrey and I as we learn to express the beauty of the biblical story together. The Ark. We are going to be talking about the Ark today, Father Jeffrey. And the Ark, it, for the common for the common man, whenever you think of the Bible and you think of the word ark, your mind's probably going to go to one of two places. One is kind of the story of Noah and a whole bunch of animals and all that kind of stuff. And then maybe to that Indiana Jones movie, uh, you know, <laughs> where you're looking for this, I guess, box with angels on it that has some kind of magical meaning that'll melt people's faces or, or something like that. Um, but, you know, when it comes to uh, some of these studies, what we're trying to do is go to the to the beginning and working our way through all the way to how this biblical idea or this biblical image um, expresses itself in our liturgical worship. So maybe we should start with that Noah's Ark, given that it's kind of the first one that appears in the story. Would that be reasonable, Father? It would seem eminently reasonable. It's the first Ark that people are going to meet when they are reading the canonical scriptures from beginning, you know, through to end. And of course, it's a familiar story to, to so many people. But I'm going to pose a question, and that is, why do you think it's called an ark? You know, um, an ark is, it means a chest, right? A box. And this is a pretty big chest or box. Mm. Um, and it has a very kind of elaborate and, you know, if you start to think about it, odd way of being constructed um, and so forth. Uh, and what's been really interesting is to see how that compares to, uh, you know, the other stories from the ancient Near East about great floods, right? That we, we know, you know, from, you know, kind of mar modern archaeology and anthropology that, that this Hebrew story in the Bible of a great flood that covered all the earth is a common ancient Near Eastern you know, narrative. And in all the other ones, it's not described as an ark. It's described as you might expect, you know, as some kind of ship or, or boat or, or, or whatever, what have you. And what's telling here is that in all respects, what differs about this account in Genesis chapter six of the ark from all these other stories is where exactly Genesis chapter six mirrors Exodus in what God asks Moses to do in the construction of that, that Ark of the Covenant, the one you referred to from Indiana Jones. We'll, we'll oh. go there. I think our, our podcast will go too long. So in, in, in every respect, what's different about this is that we have a description of the box that Moses was to, to construct in order to place the tablets of the law, of the Torah, of the Ten Commandments um, in those, which would then become the presence of God amidst his people, right? And so that's really fascinating, even though here's the thing, a different word is used. In, in, uh, in the Hebrew, in Genesis chapter 6, we have the word teva, and in uh, Exodus, the, the ark, which is it's a, it's just another word for a chest or an ark, uh, is aron, Right. But tellingly, by the time this got translated into Greek in the Septuagint, the same word is used, kivitos in the Greek. So, you know, clearly in people's minds is the idea that the reason Noah has an ark, not a boat or a yacht or a ship, you know, rather in, and, and why the, 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 the compartment that it contains the law is also called an ark is because they are, in fact, 
one is a mirror of the other. And as we've said mm. before, if the very first thing that happens, you know, to kind of form Israel, to, to form, form the people uh, of God is this exodus from, from Egypt. The very first part of the scriptures is in fact the hymn of deliverance from slavery in Egypt and God who brings, you know, the, the people of Israel into, into freedom by dividing the waters and creating a dry place and so forth. That if all, you know, Genesis is a back reading of that in terms of creation. Well, it makes sense that, you know, a few chapters on in Genesis, a back reading of what God asks Moses to do in creating an ark in which, I mean, that, that, that's where it makes sense. You create a chest in which to contain these things, right? But then why does Noah have an ark? It's because Moses had one, because the people of Israel were asked to have one. And that's why that word uh, is specifically used and why in English, it does make sense to use you know, the same word here. And although today, a lot of people say ark, that's just another word for a boat. It's not, it's a word for a chest, uh, you know, like a, a compartment um, in which you, 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 contain things right and so uh, it's fascinating you know the, the, the first one is the one really that god asked moses to do and then the story is retold from genesis in terms of the same kind of thing so the question becomes um, you know, what's an ark why, why does god want people to have an ark <laughs> right. right that word that word ark is so commonly used that we don't even necessarily know what it means anymore you know what i mean like uh so it, when when you think about the bible like you like you mentioned when you say ark people might even have the image of a boat come to mind um but yeah it sounds like what you're saying is that you know the 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 reason why the people who wrote the story of Noah used the word ark instead of boat is because they are using the word for the ark of the covenant, right? Mm -hmm. So when we contemplate that story of Noah, it's, it's this sort of narrative way of contemplating the meaning of what the ark of the covenant actually is. So to understand, I guess, is, is this what you're saying, father, to understand the story of Noah properly, you need to first understand what the ark of the, the role of the ark of the covenant is in the community of Israel. Is that is that about right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of people will proceed, you know, what they view as chronologically in, through the canon of the scriptures, and lots of people will start with Genesis chapter one and, and read through there. But what you have to understand is that in so many ways, the whole of Genesis is actually a, a projection backwards of the later themes and um, emphases of Israel's relationship with God. You know, you'll notice, for example, Judah is really, really prominent in the book of Genesis. And you kind of wonder, why is that the case? You know, of all the things to talk about, why does Judah, you know, come up as, as a major, you know, character there? Well, Judah eventually becomes the one tribe that is left after the multiple exiles and, and so forth. So all of Judaism, you know, comes from that. So there's a, this tremendous emphasis on Judah uh, that, that comes across. And, and so all of the stories really to fully understand them, whether you're reading through chronologically, you know, in terms of the, the canon of scripture or not, but to truly understand what's going on, you have to kind of read intertextually and to understand, ah, okay, the, the kind of the first thing that happens in Israel's history is deliverance from Egypt and God making a covenant with them. And then I mean, I mean, even in that traditional sense in which Moses is the author of, of Genesis, right? This is not something that you know, most scholars would accept, you know, today, but even if we, you know, we, we read liturgically, we call it the first book of Moses and so forth. I mean, that specifically says it all, right? If, if Even if that were the case, Moses, from the vantage point of the Exodus and of God's covenant on Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, the creation of the ark, 
is the one we're telling the story of creation and of the flood and of the deliverance of Noah and his family and all of the animals, you know, amidst all of the corruption and the debasement, the, the un, undoing of creation that had been taking place, God's recreation, you know, of the world. Even in that traditional view, Moses is the one telling it. So it makes sense that it's being done in terms that pertain to you know, Exodus and to the giving, giving of the law and, and the formation of that ark. And so of course you call it an ark. It's, 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 it has a similar kind of purpose to preserve God's presence and covenant and creational purposes, right? With, with, with the world. In some senses, you know, there's a covenant with, with Adam and, and in the garden, there's a covenant made with, with Noah. Uh, there's covenant with Abraham and, and with Moses. And it's the covenant with Moses that is the, the, the one that ultimately is the formation of the people of Israel from which all the others are kind of understood as the backdrop, the preliminary, you know, stages in that. And so you get this retelling within those terms. So it really, I mean, it deepens the understanding of it, right? It's not that you can you can't understand it without that, but it just deepens what what's going on here. To understand Noah's Ark is, in some senses, the Ark of the Covenant before there is an Ark of the Covenant. So I'm going to list off a couple of I don't know um, mental images that come to mind when I think of Ark, particularly the Ark of the Covenant, and then we can sort of parse some of that out and see what what actually lines up and and what doesn't. Um, you know, this is for that toolkit. When the word art comes up, what are we supposed to be thinking about? So when I think of the Ark of the Covenant, I think of, number one, a box, right? A chest. Um, mm-hmm. It's decorated. Uh, it sits at the center of the community, right? Uh, it's the place where God actually comes and dwells with his people. Uh, it's the place that is the presence of God, uh, this, not only the presence of God, but that saving presence of God, that rescuing or that uh, creational or recreational presence of God. Um, it leads the people. It's the, it's the thing that holds the waters back of the Jordan when they pass into the promised land. Um, so, you know, it's, it's the thing that actually the holiness of it, when it's taken out of its context, we read in, in the books of Samuel or, or first kingdoms where the, the ark is actually taken by the Philistines to these towns and people start getting sick in those towns and they don't know why. And they figure, oh, well, maybe it's this ark of the covenant thing because it's this, um, the it's, it's being abused or it's being taken out of its context. Um, you know, David dances in front of this. So it seems to be that this focal point of the saving power of, of God. So if I were, I'm going to keep thinking out loud here, Father Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. Um, So if, if that's the image that I'm supposed to have, okay, the ark is this saving power of God that sits and leads the community. Okay. When I read the story of Noah's ark and and God says, build me an ark, then I think, okay, you build Noah's job is to build a box that will be the place in which God's saving power and his creation and recreational desires for humanity will be accomplished. And in that story, it's sort of this turned up to 11 narrative, right? Like the entire world is destroyed, but yet you have this arc with mm-hmm. the people that are there that are, that are no matter, even if the entire world is destroyed, God is with these people or this group. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll end my thinking out loud there, and you can parse some of that out. Yeah, all that, right? I mean, it, all of those narratives, and some of them are really curious and comical, nearly, right? In terms of uh, the way that you know Israel understands 
you know, the place of the Ark. And, and if you read very carefully, you know, things go wrong when the Ark is abused. Uh, you know, everything from people touching it when they're not supposed to touch it and they get zapped or to, you know, King Saul, who when it kind of goes on the, the downward uh, turn that he takes, you know, it, it says that he stops consulting the Ark, stops praying in the presence, you know, of the Ark. Uh, you get, you know, David's curious relationship with it in the sense that he understands it as as his, the place where he kind of enters into God's presence and and, and is with him in, in prayer. But, but you know, his intention is to bring that Ark into Jerusalem and first with the tent, the tabernacle. He has the purpose of of setting up a, a temple, never able to fulfill that. He passes on the plans to his son, you know, Solomon. But there's times when, you know, David sort of, you know, is, he's afraid of the thing and he leaves it, you know, outside the city for a while and then only goes back after a few months to, to get it. I mean, it, 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 it's so central, but you know, people are just, there's still the sense of mystery and of power, of untold power. And it's this story of God's presence amidst his people. What God went to Abraham and said, this is what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to, out of all these nations of the world that have rebelled against me, all this chaos and so forth, I am going to save all those nations, but I'm going to do that by choosing your family. And that family goes into slavery in Egypt, is delivered from Egypt, you know, uh, initially oddly through the activity of an ark. The other, the word uh, teva, which is the word in, used in the Noah uh, narrative in the Hebrew, is the same word used for the little basket that Moses is placed in at his birth, right? You think, again, it's totally unnecessary that this be called a chest. It makes no sense. If it's built out of rushes, surely it's like a raft or something like that. There are other words, but the word used is teva, meaning an ark. And so Moses delivered, you know, out of, from, from certain death by an ark is the one that God comes to with his saving fiery presence, you know, on Mount Sinai and calls him into, to, to be the leader of his people. And it's an, you know, it is through God's saving activity that they are delivered out of, of bondage in Egypt into, you know, the, the moving towards the, the promised land. And that presence of God is represented by what God specifically in great detail asks Moses to do to construct this box, right? And it's fascinating because um, that box, uh, you know, which is on, on top of which is is a, a kind of cover, which is considered like a throne. That's where God is enthroned. So when God speaks to Moses from that point forward, it's from, you know, that throne, uh, also called the mercy seat, where, you know, there's a carved cherubim uh, at, at each side of it. And when Isaiah has an image of God's presence amidst his people in uh, that famous vision in chapter six, God is enthroned on that. And then he sees the kind of uh, the, the, his robes that fill the whole temple and so forth. So no one can actually enter you know, into the full presence of God, but this ark is where God is seen to, to dwell with his people. So it's this place of great power, of great mystery. And you know, tracing where the ark is becomes uh, an interesting you know, kind of exercise in, in the Old Testament you know, narrative. And of course, it's lost by the time of the fall of the temple and the destruction of the temple. And we know that God's presence was never said to have returned. Even after a limited number of people come back from exile in Babylon, and there's a construction of a second temple under Ezra and Nehemiah, and kind of successive generations there, the, there is no ark, and there's, it's never said that God's presence descends in that temple. And so the next place you have 
a dwelling of God in the midst of his people is in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, right? Right, so, in the gospel of uh, beginning of the gospel of John, where he talks about tabernacling with yeah, humanity, exactly. Right? You know, so this is where the narrative, you know, is is pointing at. And so, again, this is kind of this microcosm of what God's purposes are that are connected, you know, with this ark. And it goes in it right the way back to the recreation in the time of Noah, to calling, you know, Moses to lead his people and the ark that's there. And then specifically this ark where God's presence is said to dwell, this throne of God and all of that imagery of, of where God dwells, where God sits and where who's kind of invited to to share in that presence and to to kind of come to be at that throne you know it becomes the you know the the imagery and symbolism of the new testament in some ways the the cross itself which is the culmination of and and fulfillment of god with us right this is the fullest sense of god dwelling with his people where he embraces even death to be with us to save us and so that even the cross is described as a kind of throne uh, of god which is again reminiscent of you know the the wood of, of an ark that god has asked moses to construct and has seen in all of these different places If you haven't yet become a patron of enacting the kingdom over on Patreon you're only getting a small fraction of everything we're up to When you become a patron for as little as $3 a month, you'll get immediate access to over 100 Patreon-exclusive episodes, weekly new releases, private live streams, and Patreon community events like Bible studies. And as we're social media free, Patreon is the only place to engage with us and others about these episodes. Go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to join the growing community. And Christ, you know, he, he constantly points to himself like the, the a synonym. I'm not sure if this is a synonym, but a, a similar concept that's coming to mind is temple. Right. Um, this idea of that that physical bounded presence of God amongst his people. But Christ will identify himself as the temple. Right. He'll say, you tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, which is a foretelling exactly. of his three day resurrection. So is, you know, ultimately all these images from the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus Christ himself, I suppose. And, and that seems to be the way that Jesus himself understood those, those stories as well, isn't it? Yeah, he appropriates all of that imagery, you know, for himself. So, um, and, the, and the other, you know, New Testament writers, the apostles and, and others will, will build on that. And so that all the things that pertain to what, what it was when God dwelt with his people become images that that reflect you know who Jesus Christ is so he's the temple he's the tabernacle he's the altar he's the victim he's the high priest right uh he is that kind of central place in Israel's worship which is called the you know the holy of holies right um and it's into that presence that we are at, invited to to participate, right? That that by, by making permanent what had been these transitory, impermanent, you know, and as I say, that kind of comical story almost of where the ark is and who has it and they steal it and they get, you know, maybe not quite their faces melted off, but they start to have like something like a bubonic plague, you know, among, amongst them and the Philistines. And, uh, you know, it, and, you know, Absalom has the ark rather than David at the time of his rebellion and all these kinds of things happening and everything. It just shows how impermanent that presence was. It wasn't the fulfillment of, of what was to happen. The point was not that Israel would keep this box and through this box where God dwells with his people, that they would just vanquish nation after nation and rule over them all. The point 
is what we see in Jesus Christ, right? Um, so this is what Hebrews is all about, right? If you look at Hebrews, you know, chapter nine, um, just read a little bit from the beginning. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary, right? For a tent, a tabernacle was constructed, the first one in which were the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence, and this is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the holy of holies, and in it stood the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. So this is just referring back to what um, is described in Exodus in which there were a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's rod that budded. Now, this is interesting because in Exodus, uh, the Ark of the Covenant only contains the tablets of the covenant, which is the next thing that the writer to the Hebrews mentions. But it's here we get, it also contains some, some manna in a jar and the, that rod of Aaron that budded showing, you know, the true priesthood, right? That existed in the Aaronic, you know, line. So, and the tablets of the covenant, the writer goes on above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. That's just what we've just described, right? And of these things, we cannot speak now in detail. So these preparations having been made, the priests go continually into the first tent to carry out their ritual duties. This is an ongoing thing. It's impermanent. It's transitory. But only the high priest goes into the second, and he but once a year, and not without taking the blood that he offers for himself and for the sins committed unintentionally by the people. Right. So this idea of the high priest who enters the Holy of Holies into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant and can offer an annual sacrifice for the sins you know, of all the people. Right. Skipping ahead a couple of verses here to 11, when Christ came, when the Messiah came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, not made with hands, so his own body, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So the point here is that all of that all of that transitory, impermanent, ongoing, you know, stuff that, that, that works sometimes, it doesn't work other times, that gets stolen by foreign powers, that gets lost eventually at the time of the Babylonian exile, all of that finds a permanent and true fulfillment in Jesus Christ, right? So to understand Ark is to know more about what God's, you know, doing in and through Jesus Christ here. And it's, it's really fascinating the way, um, you know, Jesus, as you say, Jesus himself appropriates that imagery and speaks about it. And then in, in a period of reflection on that, the New Testament authors are able to say, hey, yeah, that's what this is all about. This is what the cross represents. This is what, you know, how Jesus fulfills all of what we knew to be God's presence in that kind of microcosm of his purposes in the tabernacle and in the ark. If you are getting value from this podcast, please consider writing a short, positive five-star review view on your podcast app. And even though we are social media free, there's still a place you can keep up to date with Enacting the Kingdom. You can join the email list by going to enactingthekingdom.com. So let's talk about our liturgical architecture, you know, our, our Orthodox churches, because we claim as Orthodox Christians to be in full continuity with the scriptures and that scriptural story. And, you know, one of the ways that we express that is 
Okay, the first thing that's coming to my mind is often in an Orthodox church, when you're facing the front, you know, in that big domed area or kind of on the back wall of the church, you might see actually a, an image of the Mother of God, of Mary, with her arms spread wide open in an embracing posture. And within her, in a, in a clipia, in an orb, in within her womb is Christ himself, who's giving a blessing. And it seems to me that this is that image of, you know, uh, it's that image of the Ark of the Covenant, right? That um, that place where God dwells among people, right? That image from the beginning of the Gospel of John. Um, now, you know, that's the first one that comes to mind, Father, and that seems to that connection seems to make a lot of sense to me. It does. So, I mean, a couple of things are happening there. Um, you know, and as you say, this is in the altar area, which in you know, some descriptions of what Orthodox architecture represents, you know, could be called the Holy of Holies. So you have in a way a kind of symbolic layout that mirrors, you know, those tents that are being referred to in, in Hebrews, uh, but indeed the, the structure of the the temple itself, which had, of course, the court of the nations around. You could say that's the narthex where everybody's allowed to enter. Then you had the, the court of the faithful where, you know, those who were ritually clean could enter in order to offer sacrifice and so forth. They had to be part of the covenant community. And that's kind of the, the nave, you know, the main part of, of the church, which interestingly, nave, that's a, that's a word that comes out of um, the imagery of ships, right? <laughs> Think of naval. Would then be connected to sort of the, the story of Noah's Ark then, eh? Just, yeah, exactly. So the people who are contained within the saving covenant family, you know, of God, they're within that ship. But then, of course, the altar area, you know, today, you know, behind an iconostasis of some kind, you know, different traditions that can be uh, more opaque or more open. It can be higher or it can be lower and that sort of thing. And as you say, on the far wall, you have what effectively is, as you say, an icon of the Ark of the Covenant, because by the fifth century, a lot of, you know, as we're saying in the first century, all of that imagery of Old Testament worship is directed towards Jesus himself, right? He's the one who fulfills all that. So he's the Ark of the Covenant. He's the tabernacle. He's the temple. He's the priest. He's the, the sacrifice. He's the altar. All that, you know, is fulfilled in him. But as a kind of secondary reflection in the fifth century, you know, when, um, as part of the Christological debates and, you know, is Jesus fully man? Is he Jesus fully God? Uh, you know, some were starting to say, well, the, his mother is the mother of his humanity uh, in, in a kind of separate personhood. Um, and so we can't call her mother of God. We can only call her mother of, of Christ. And there's a certain logic, you know, to that, but it, it's excluded, you know, just because of the dangers of that way of thinking. Right. And so the church goes into a mode of emphasizing the, the role of the Virgin Mary, not to emphasize her or to elevate her as such, but to say, to protect what the church was teaching about Jesus Christ. And so in a kind of secondary move, a lot of that imagery, like the jar of the manna, right, or of the, the budding staff, both of which were in the Ark of the Covenant, or indeed the Ark itself that, that contains God's presence, contains Torah. So if Jesus is Torah, what is it that contains him? Oh, that's Mary, right? Uh, the Virgin Mary is is the jar because Christ is the manna, right? And so there's the fifth century liturgical move is to almost as a secondary thing, uh, apply that imagery to, to Mary as well. And if you look through the liturgies we now have around the Marian feasts, you find that everywhere, right? And a big example of this is the, the Akathist of Romanus, the, the Melodist from, from not far after that time, where 
all of that Im- imagery now is not just applied to Christ, but to, to the mother of God, you know, as well. So, but as a mm-hmm. little bit of a caution here, let me just say this. Um, in a lot of Orthodox Christian minds, um, what ends up happening, and I think this is the case today, if you just interrogate a little bit or ask people what they, they think, what they've done is move back into an Old Testament mode, right? Where they, you know, they'll think, um, you know, we're back to the temple, you know, we're back to only certain people are capacitated to go and stand in the presence of God. So the altar area becomes the Holy of Holies and only, you know, the high priests can go in there. And, you know, so you get this elevation uh, or, or a kind of reintroduction of priesthood into the church. We've talked about this elsewhere in podcasts that, that actually we don't have priests in the Orthodox Church, uh, in that Old Testament sense, because the one priest is Christ. And we, you know, we believe in this eschatological fulfillment that is described in Hebrews chapter nine of Christ is the priest who has once for all offered this permanent sacrifice so that we have access to the presence of God. So to, to somehow by borrowing this imagery, which is, that's the, that's okay move. That's the, the typological one, but then to kind of systematize based on that, a, a, a new Old Testament theology in which, you know, the average layperson stands outside, is only capable of going so far, and that on their behalf, a priesthood offers sacrifice, right? So in that sense, if you understand the altar as holy of holies, and what happens on the altar as what's, you know, the Old Testament priests were doing in terms of sacrifice, that only they have access to the presence of God, and so on and so forth. This is, it's to undo the incarnation. It's to undo the, 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 the fact that the life of the age to come has been inaugurated in and through Jesus Christ. It's to reject the eschatological vision of, of the early church. And people can go back and listen to various, you know, things we've talked about before. But I mean, that's, that is what's happened, right? And so we have almost again a priesthood that has been introduced and, and the, the distinction between priests and just the ordinary lay people and, you know, who, does or does not have access, you know, to that. And we almost get to the point, you know, where people are imagining if they do the wrong thing in these spaces, it's going to be like Uzziah, you know, touching the Ark of the Covenant and being zapped, right? You know, we have, you know, even canons that point out to, oh, you know, only deacons and above can touch items that that are on on the holy table and so forth. And I, I, honestly, I, I think this is an anti-eschatological move. This is an, this is to undo what Hebrews is talking about. It's to undo what Christ has said about himself. It's to return to a period of expectation of one day God will make this permanent, but not yet, right? And so far better in the tradition is an image like that of St. Macrina, you know, as she's dying, clinging to the, to the, to the holy table within the, within the altar area. She's a woman and she's not ordained and yet she's touching that and and, and and showing by that action that she is, because of Jesus Christ, made capable of standing within that presence that is represented by God's sharing of that life, you know, with the world that was first contained in this impermanent transitory place called an ark, but through Jesus Christ has been made available, you know, to all. So just, a, you know, I, I think it's fine to use this imagery and to, to kind of take it forward and to apply it to what we do in the church. But if we kind of 
read back in the whole Old Testament theology, which is a period of expectation of the eschatological fulfillment. If we do that, then we're undoing the whole point of the New Testament. And there's nothing left of, of Christianity right, right. at that point. It's like the the middle way, right? Because to to not use any of this imagery would be to deny the story itself. But mm-hmm. to but to abuse the imagery, to take it too far, is to put ourselves back in the earlier part of the story and not actually where we are now. Right. We need to tell the imagery as a, like it's a fulfillment. That's the key right, thing. That right. When we use that imagery, we use it in a fulfilled sense, not in a, oh, well, now we're back to, you know, the same categories that, that applied before. Right. You know what? You, you've kind of answered this already, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask it anyways, and you can just give a quick answer if you want. Um, but is it, is it appropriate to say that when we come to our local Orthodox church building, that that place is an ark. I think it represents the fulfillment of the arks that we read about in the Old Testament. So indeed, you can you can sense that in this particular way, and again, um, because things are not ultimately fulfilled, there is a special role. This is what we've talked before about what liturgy does. Liturgy is this rehearsal, this concentration of what God intends for the whole world. So although the reality is present now, it has yet to be fully spread through all of creation. So what we do when we come to the liturgy of the church, when we enter those buildings, we are concentrating and rehearsing the purposes of God for for everywhere. So it's not like it's a special holy place set aside like the ark you know, in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. We can't imagine it's that. But now that God's presence is available on all, his Holy Spirit is is poured out on all flesh. It's spread through all of, of creation. We nevertheless come together to celebrate that fact and to then take that out. So as long as you understood, yes, you're coming into an ark and into the presence of God, in the full presence of God, uh, you know, what Isaiah saw with the, you know, the, 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 the coal being brought to his lips so that he could in fact be capacitated to be in God's presence is what happens in the liturgy. But the point of that is then that we spread out, we are dismissed from the liturgy to carry that presence of God to the world, because that's the ultimate point of this, that God will be all in all, that his presence will be with with all people. So it's not a, a retreat into the special holy place you know, contained in, a, in this constrained way and so forth. It's a it's a return in a concentrated way to God's saving purposes and presence in order to take that to the whole world. So if we understand it in that term, that's the, what we mean by this is the fulfilled imagery, not the, you know, just carrying on the practices of the Old Testament. Then certainly the, the whole church is an ark. You could talk about, you know, the, the mother of God as ark. You could talk about the, the altar that where God's presence comes to us in the in the in the holy bread and divine cup uh all of that is is fine you know but understand that it's for the whole world it's god's presence now and and the whole world becomes ultimately the ark of god's presence thanks for listening i'm father yuri gladio an orthodox christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning and i'm joined on this show by my teacher and friend father jeffrey reddy Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in liturgical theology. Come connect with us on Patreon with any thoughts and follow-ups about this episode. We look forward to seeing you next time.